The scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 7, verses 16 to 23 in the ESV. Verse 16, fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you. I'm here with my family, and we had the the privilege of worshiping with you. I think it was in the spring. It was Jonah's first preaching, first time preaching here, I think. So it's great to be back with you guys. And uh, I bring you greetings this morning really from two, two places. Uh, first, greetings from our home church. My family and I worship at New Life Presbyterian in Escondido. We've been there 20 plus years and served in various roles. But I bring you also greetings from engaging disability with the gospel, which is our denomination's national disability ministry. I've had the privilege of serving uh, at Engaging Disability for the past two years. We are, uh, one, we are under the umbrella of MNA, which is Mission to North America, or sort of the home missions arm of our denomination. There are 20, actually 22 different ministries that are a part of home missions, MNA. Ours focuses on coaching churches, and we help them learn how to disciple and to enfold kids, teens, and adults impacted by disability. And that is a ministry that is near and dear to my heart for a couple of key reasons. One, uh, my son Stephen was born four months premature. Uh, He was just a little over a pound when he was born. And coming out of the complications with that, uh, Stephen has disability. So disability has been part of our family world for 23 years. Uh, And then I've had the privilege at New Life of serving as a coordinator for disability ministry for 10 or 11 years now, and so it's something that's really near and dear to my heart, and it's really part of the reason why I selected the text that I did this morning. Um, Jesus is talking about disability, Uh, but beyond that, it really is an extraordinary encounter that these disciples of John the Baptist had with Jesus, isn't it? Um, It was the question that they asked was a bit unexpected. And so we're going to dive into that this morning. And as we do our framework for looking at the text 
uh, is very simple. We're just going to look at the, que- the question that was asked of Jesus. Then we're going to look at the answer that Jesus gave. And then we're going to ask ourselves, so what? What does that have to do with us today here at Trinity? So the question, the answer, and the so what. Um, let me set the context a little bit for the question. And I know uh, I had Sue pick up in a unusual spot for the reading of Scripture, but there's a reason for that. What we need to understand is that prior to uh, this encounter with Jesus, Jesus, as Luke records, that Jesus had uh, recently just healed the servant of a Roman centurion merely by speaking words from a distance. And then, after that, Luke records for us that Jesus had encountered a funeral procession, and the funeral was for the son of a widow. And out of compassion, Jesus raised her son to life. And it is the reaction to those two events that is where our text picked up. It was that news that, first of all, the the reality of that is that fear seized them all. They glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So in reaction to Jesus uh, healing and raising this this boy to life, uh, the news spread everywhere. So we would say it went viral, right? Their phones were blowing up with news about Jesus. And and in reaction to that, John the Baptist sends two of his disciples to Jesus and asks a question. I don't know if you clued, if you listened to the question or not, but if you did, did you find it surprising? Was it unexpected? I think it was. I mean, after all, John the Baptist was born to give witness to the Messiah, Luke begins his gospel. I think most of the first three chapters of the gospel of Luke focus on John the Baptist, his birth and his calling from God to be a forerunner for the Messiah. And we know that John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. So, you know, they grew up together. In knowing all of this, it's surprising, it's unexpected that John would ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or should we be looking for another? Right? John the Baptist, at this point in Jesus' ministry, asked that question. Are you the one? Jesus, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Or should I be looking for somebody else? It's surprising. We aren't told why John asked the question. But to me, there is one explanation that seems to fit the facts as we see them in Scripture. Because John sent his disciples to ask the question because he was in prison. See, John, John was in, and Luke records it for us, John was in prison because he had the, the boldness to go to the ruler, Herod the Tetrarch, and confront him about his marriage, which was an unlawful marriage. In our day, we would say that John spoke truth to power. The result of that was that he ended up in prison. And as we read later in Luke's gospel, he was beheaded. But when John sent his disciples, he was in prison for, for confronting Herod. And see, John, I think John had expected the Messiah to come in power and to come with acts of judgment, not acts of mercy and compassion. I think that's why John asked the question. We read earlier in Luke's gospel, in Luke 3, Uh, Verses 16 and 17. John himself proclaiming that when the Messiah comes, quote, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's the picture that John gives us of the coming Messiah. So I think, I think it's reasonable to conclude that John was actually wondering why Jesus wasn't bringing judgment against Herod. I think John was wondering why he was in jail. Why was he in prison? Why wasn't Jesus doing something about it if he was the Messiah? So it's an unexpected question. It's a surprising question. But we understand it, don't we? Because we do the same thing. We, we actually ask the same sort of question, right? When the circumstances of our lives don't match up with our expectations of what we think God should be doing in our lives, we ask that question. Why, God? Why? Why is this happening to me? Why did I lose my job? Why did we get that diagnosis? Why did my loved one die? Why, God, why? We ask that same kind of question all the time. So I think we can resonate with it, right? We get it. We understand a little bit about why John asked that. But we need to look then at the answer. And the answer is found in verses 22 and 23 of our text this morning. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So that's Jesus' answer. I'm going to summarize, I think, the significance of it for you. One commentator put it this way. He said, in Jesus' mind, the primary indication of his being the Messiah was his ministry to the physically disabled and the socially weak and the alienated. I'll read it one more time. In Jesus' mind, the primary indication of his being the Messiah was his ministry to the physically disabled and the socially weak and alienated. Uh, when I ran into that quote, this sermon is really burst out of my exploring that quote because it seemed a little over the top to me, to tell you the truth. I'm like, that's a bold statement. The primary, really the primary indication. But the more time I spent with it, I think it's right. I think it's a fair comment, and I think it's, it's fair for a couple of reasons and a couple of different levels. So I want to unpack that with you briefly. So on one level, this, that statement is true because everything that Jesus is doing, all the actions that, that he was talking about in his answer, are all things that are fulfillment of Scripture. They are fulfillment of Scripture. Excuse me. So... All those amazing things that he described, right, that the, that, uh, that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, and, and so on, all of them come right out of the Old Testament. They all come out of Isaiah, actually. And so what Jesus is showing John and his disciples is that, look, I'm doing all these things that Isaiah said the Messiah would do. Every one of them, Isaiah said, would be performed by the Savior. So in that sense, it's very true, but... If we limit our understanding of Jesus' answer to just that point, that what he was doing was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, I think we, we can fall into one of two, two minor errors, if you will. One is that we kind of reduce, reduce the actions Jesus is describing here as just sort of items on Jesus' to-do list, right? As if Jesus was striving to meet this, the metrics that his heavenly Father had given him to do. Uh, we can look at it that way, that it's just it's something that he has to do because he's Messiah. The other, the other error is one I know I tend to fall in, and that is to look at, 
at a passage like this for its apologetic value, for, its, for the value it holds in proving that Jesus is Messiah. Uh, right? So you can look at it and you can, and you can say, well, Isaiah said that the Savior would do X, Y, and Z. Jesus did X, Y, and Z. Therefore, Jesus is Messiah. And we kind of reduce it and boil it down into a text that is, has great value in showing people that Jesus is the Savior. But if we, if, we, if we just land there, again, I think we fall short. To fully understand the significance of Jesus' answer, we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper. So we begin to realize that, when we look deeper, that apart from the, from the, the phrase preaching, or sorry, that preaching good news to the poor, Everything else in that list, those are things that only God can do. They're things that only God can do. And let me just pick two for an example. The first one is healing the lepers. He said that, that, that he's healing the lepers. The, um, yeah, lepers are cleansed. And we, we gloss over that. If you grew up in the church or if you've been in the church any length of time, that's a phrase I think that you just sort of, we get used to it. And we, we don't realize how startling that really is, and how it, startling it really was. We have to remember that, that leprosy being a skin disease, that the person who had it was labeled unclean. They had to shout unclean, unclean, wherever they went. Uh, they were ostracized socially. They were ostracized from, from worship. And, and in light of that, too, the view was that if you touched somebody with leprosy, you would become unclean. Someone with leprosy was considered ceremonially unclean, and if you touch them, you would become unclean. I'm just going to pause there for a second because you, I, you know, I know you're, I see on your faces, yeah, this sounds pretty boring, but think about it. Think about it for a minute. Think of how this works because Jesus reversed the process. Think for a minute, if you would, imagine if you would, that you had a white glove on your hand and we had the rain like we had last weekend, and there was a mud puddle outside, and so you take your hand with the glove, and you put your glove into the mud puddle, and you pull your hand out of the mud puddle, and lo and behold, you look, and what, what's happened? Your glove has become muddy, right? That's what you expect, that your glove is muddy. But imagine if instead you had a glove on your hand, and you put it into the mud puddle, and you pulled it out, and your glove was clean, and the, the mud puddle had become glovey. That's the exact opposite of what you would expect, right? And that was the power of Jesus healing someone with leprosy. He touched them, and the unclean became clean. And Jesus did not become unclean. That's what they expected. They expect, oh, Jesus, you touch someone with leprosy, you become unclean. But he did the exact opposite. And they were afraid. They knew this was amazing, that Jesus had this power. And they realized only God can do that. And if Jesus is doing it, he must be God in the flesh. It was amazing. Jesus also said that the dead are raised up. And you and I know that only God can do that. He did it out of compassion for a widow whose only son had died, her only means of support. And he raised a young man to life without even a word. We know only God can do that. How much don't we long to have that power? How many times haven't you experienced death in your family where you wish you could have raised them back to life? But only God can do that. And so when we look at what Jesus is saying here, 
He's, he's pointing out that he is God in the flesh. Friends, these actions were not just shows of power. If they were just shows of power, it would have reduced the recipients of, of Jesus' healing and blessing to just being props in his magic show. But that's not the case, because we read over and over in Scripture that Jesus healed out of compassion and out of mercy. You know, again, John most likely expected Jesus to begin his ministry with powerful acts of judgment, right? He, John expected Jesus to be a lot more like the superheroes in our movies. John probably expected Jesus to be a lot more like, I don't know, like Thor or Hulk, right? To come in and with power and might to go after the bad guys and, you know, mete out justice upon them. I think that's what John was expecting. But instead, Jesus came to them more like Aragorn in Tolkien's The Return of the King, who, in the book, not in the movie, so you have to go to the book to see if I'm telling you the truth. Who revealed himself in the, in the book, Aragorn revealed himself to be the true king of Gondor by healing people who were injured in battle with his hand. And they're like, oh, that's the true king. He's the true king. Right? That's how Jesus came. Not like Thor, not like Hulk, but like Aragorn. So the question is, why? Why? Why did Jesus come that way? Why with healing instead of Thor-like acts of power? Friends, he did it because of who he is in his very nature. You know, Exodus 34 contains a, an amazing and beautiful self-disclosure of God. God tells us what he's like. And it begins with the attributes merciful and gracious. And that word merciful, that's the way the ESV translates it. Other translations use the word compassionate. So merciful and compassionate uh, are equivalent words. The question is, what does it mean? Right? So you read the wooden translation, and, and it, it says to have one's heart go out to something. But that doesn't quite get you or me there, because my heart goes out to a really good burrito, but I don't have compassion on a burrito. Right? It's, the compassion is more the experience you have when you hold a newborn baby in your arm. So my uh, daughter and son-in-law and their two kids are here, and my grandson's three weeks old. So this is his second worship service in three weeks of life. Um, but when I hold him in my arm, even though he's my grandson, even if he wasn't, right? Anytime you hold any baby in your arm, your heart goes out to the baby, right? You, you want to make sure they're secure. You want to make sure they're comfortable and not crying. You want to shade them from the sun. That's compassion, that's your heart going out to someone. And that's what our God is like. You see, in his answer to John the Baptist, Jesus is showing us that one sign, one sign of the kingdom of God is compassion for individuals and families who are impacted by disability. I think of it this way. God has a heart for disability ministry. And that really shouldn't surprise us because it's all over Scripture and it's all over the Old Testament. I want to just draw your attention to two, two places. First in Leviticus. Leviticus 19.14. Um, in this list of laws and commandments, we read this one. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. That's an odd command to put in Scripture, isn't it? Of all the things God could tell us, this, why this one? 
it seems a little bit out of place. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. I think it's because he knows our hearts. He knows our hearts, the fallenness of our hearts apart from Christ. And he knows that all of us have this tendency, this proclivity uh, to make fun of, to mock, to malign those who are different than us. Right? We don't talk about it much. But in light of a, a commandment like that, we have to, right? We all tend to make fun of people who are different than us, to malign them, to judge them, whether it's economic difference, whether it's a racial difference, whether it's an ability difference, whether it's a gender difference. We all tend to make fun of, mock those who are different than us. And God knows that. And so he said, not in my household, not in my family. You will not malign, you will not mock, and you will not take advantage of those who are disabled. It's not how we roll in the house of God. So that's one example. The, another one is in Zephaniah. Zephaniah is proclaiming the coming of the Messiah and what it will be like. And he says this, Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. The Messiah will change their shame and turn it into praise and renown in all the earth. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly, exactly what Jesus was doing as he intentionally went to those impacted by disability and healed them. He was changing their shame into praise. There are two things we know about the reality of life with disability at the time of Jesus. One is hinted at in Scripture and verified in, in extra-biblical documents. And that is that if you had a disability at the time of Jesus, you could not go to the temple to worship. You were excluded from temple worship. And you have to think about that from their point of view, right? Because what did the temple worship represent? It's how you were made right with God, right? You made your sacrifices, the atonement for your sin, and you were made right with God. If you couldn't go to the temple, you couldn't be made right with God. You couldn't experience peace with God. You couldn't experience shalom. And at the time of Christ, those with disabilities were excluded from that. Completely excluded. And so Jesus was turning outsiders into insiders. When he healed them, he was giving them access to the temple and everything that it represented. He gave them the ability to be in a right relationship with God. That's part of what was going on there, turning their shame into praise. We also see, and it's hinted at in Scripture, that uh, those with disability were often alienated from their neighbors, which is why we read that they are sitting alongside the road or they're in the, by the pool that's by the sheep gate in Jerusalem, which is not a spa-like pool, by the way. That's where they cleaned, they, they cleaned the sheep before the sacrifice. So it was a dirty, muddy pool. And that's where you read there's a whole group of folks there who had various disabilities waiting to be healed. Why? Because they were alienated from their neighbors, just like a leper was alienated from their neighbor. And so when Jesus comes and intentionally heals them, he gives them the, uh, an ability to have a restored relationship with their neighbors. And through his ministry, then he's showing, showing us all that individuals who have a disability have intrinsic value, that they're created in the image of God, that he loves them, that he cares about them, and the kingdom of God belongs to them. 
Jesus was flipping the script of their life. And he was turning their shame into, into praise. That's what he was doing. And that is really good news for every person in this room. It's really good news for everyone here. I don't want you to lose this point. This is really important. It's good news for all of us. It's good news for every human being on the planet, actually, because Scripture makes it really clear that spiritually, every single one of us, apart from Jesus Christ, are beyond disabled. We are dead. We're spiritually dead. And friends, death is the ultimate disability, isn't it? There's nothing you can do at that point. And in our text this morning, Jesus gives us a promise. He actually gives us a promise in verse 23 of our text. It's the very end. I'm sorry, verse 20. uh, Yeah, in verse 23. He says, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. The word there that, that, that we translate offended, the Greek, the Greek word is skandalizo. I only share that because you get, what it, you get what that means, right? It's scandalous. Jesus is saying that if you find being affiliated with him is scandalous, you will not receive his blessing. But if you recognize your own inability to love God with all of your heart and soul and strength and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself, if you recognize that reality, and if you cling to Jesus as the one who alone can make you right with God, you will be blessed. You will be made clean. You will be brought to life. He will turn your shame into praise. I don't know you. I know some of you a little bit. Most of you I don't know. But friends, we all fall short there, right? Just... We don't measure up to God's standards, let alone our own. We struggle to maintain relationships. I don't have her permission, but I don't think my wife will mind. We went for a walk this morning. We walked the dog, and we had a misunderstanding, and there was friction in the relationship, and I wasn't as empathetic as I should have been. And what, what happens, right? Sand gets in the gears, and the relationship has friction. Um, I didn't love her as I love myself. I love myself too much in that moment, Right? I hope I'm not the only one in the room who resonates with that. (laughs) All the husbands at least should resonate with that, right? We all fall short. But Jesus has come to turn your shame and my shame into praise. How? Through his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. He paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. He absorbed God's wrath on the cross. Then scripture says he lived this life of complete, perfect obedience, and he he gives it to us. His record becomes your record, and that's where the praise comes from. The shame is removed, and we get the praise, which really should be to him, which is why we sing praises together on Sunday morning. He gives us that perfect obedience, and we receive God's praise because of it. And that's really good news. So friends, if you're here this morning, and maybe it's the first time you've heard that, or Maybe you're thinking about it, but you haven't yet come to a point where you said, yeah, I trust Jesus. He's my Savior. He's my Messiah. I encourage you this morning to to grab hold of his promises and receive him as your Savior and have your shame turned into praise because that's what Jesus does. Let him flip the script of your life. Well, that brings us to the the last point, the so what, the so what. Um, 
What is, what is the, the answer that Jesus gave? What does it have to do with you and me or uh, today? Well, I think we begin to see the answer not in that immediate text, but you see it play out a little bit later in Luke's gospel and then elsewhere in scripture. The, f- the first place is just seven chapters down the road in Luke's gospel in Luke 14. And there Jesus is giving, uh, he tells two parables and in between the two parables, he actually gives a command. And part of the command is this. He says, when you give a feast, so he's, now he's addressing just people. And he says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. So when you have a party at your house, he says, make sure that you're inviting the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Make sure that you're inviting those who are outsiders, those who are marginalized, those who can be ostracized, Right? But it's not just, a, 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 just a, a command that's just sort of hanging out there, right? The command comes as a response to what Jesus has done. If we recognize that we, have, that we ourselves are spiritually disabled, spiritually dead, and that Christ has brought us to life, then we want to tell others about it, and we want to show them that it's true. It's really true. I want you to meet Jesus. He's so good. How do we do that, right? We want to we somehow communicate that with our words and with our actions. And Jesus says one really good way to do that is to make sure that when you have a dinner party, you're inviting those who are on the edges, those who are marginalized. It's a, it's a, re, a, it's a way to reflect the love of Jesus, to show others what he's done for you. And we do it out of hearts of compassion and out of mercy. So it's a response to what Jesus has done. And I would argue that by extension, if you and I are to invite those who are socially marginalized to our dinner tables, and we are, then as a church body, you have an obligation to make sure that you're inviting them to the Lord's table as well. And so I think that's an important, that's an important takeaway for us. And it, it, there's a sense of urgency that gets added to that when you begin to, when you, when you realize a couple of data points. I'm going to share just two with you today. First, Uh, According to the CDC, one in four Americans has a disability. One in four Americans has a disability. That that immediately should alert you that disability is probably a lot broader than than you thought of when you walked in here this morning. And it is. So there are visible disabilities, physical impairments that we notice. There are a lot of invisible disabilities. Disabilities can uh, can be emotional. They can be cognitive, they can be neurological. You can think of the growing, uh, the growing number of diagnoses for autism among kids and teens. It's increased significantly in the last 10 years. You can think about our mental health and, and all that's there. You can think about the disabilities that come as we age. We start needing glasses and hearing aids. Um, so not all disability impacts our ability to connect at church, but some do. So one in four Americans has a disability, and research has shown that most families who are touched by disability don't actually attend a church. And when they dig down more and find out why that is, the results are the same over and over again. It's because they've been made to feel unwelcome. Uh, Michael Bates is a Reformed theologian. He is a father of a daughter with profound disabilities. Uh, He gets invited to to speak at different churches. And he's recounted how numerous times they've attended churches uh, his daughter is in a wheelchair, and they've had to, you know, get volunteers to help bring her, her wheelchair up a whole bunch of stairs just to get into the church, right? Um, he's also recounted times where they've left his daughter at nursery or Sunday school, 
And the volunteers have responded with something like this, saying, you're not, you're not going to leave her here with us, are you? Um, which I understand. They don't know what to do, and they don't want to do the wrong thing. But when you're on the receiving end of that, church becomes a little bit unwelcoming. Church becomes, as one person said, like an actual city on a hill, meaning physically inaccessible and socially inhospitable. But the church shouldn't be either of those, should it? Right? Of all places on the planet, the church should be a model of an accessible community. Why? Because this is the entry point into God's love, right? This is where we hear the gospel. This is where we come into community. This is where we worship together. We pray together. We want everyone to come. We want to be accessible to everybody. So that's a takeaway from the text that we read this morning. And, the, and like it is this, that in recognition of Jesus' command, you know, our homes can be places of extraordinary hospitality. We can, we can offer extraordinary hospitality. Um, because of what Jesus has done for us. So that's a real practical takeaway. I think the second takeaway comes when we read a passage like 1 Corinthians 12, verses uh, 12 through 27. And Paul there is comparing the church, you guys, not the physical structure, but you guys, to a human body. And you know, we, he says we're all different parts of the body. And then verse 22, he makes a very important point. He said, the, point, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. The parts that are weaker are indispensable. In a word, what it really means, right, is that our congregations are incomplete without our brothers or sisters impacted by disability. And it means as churches, not just Trinity, but any church, we have, in our culture, in the U.S., we have to fight really, really, really hard against the air, cultural air that we breathe. Because I, in my work with engaging disability, I see it over and over again, we default to uh, efficiency in our churches and we default to, to excellence. We, we, value, we, we tend to value defaulting to what a person can do rather than who they are. That's a, and that just comes from the culture, right? It's not a biblical paradigm, but it's the air that we breathe. Because that's what you have at your workplace, right? What have you done for me lately? Are you hitting your metrics? Great job, you hit your sales quota do better next year. I was in sales for 10 years, so I got used to hearing that. Um, but it's never fun, right? The attaboy lasts five seconds, and then the bar gets raised. Like, that's, the, that's the world we live in. But the church needs to be a different kind of place. Why? Because the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. I love the way one, one author put it. Uh, he's speaking of the church. It should be a community. He said, quote, where each person is seen as unique and has a gift to offer. Even the littlest and the weakest person has a gift for the community. And that gift must be honored. Even the littlest and the weakest person has a gift for the community, and that gift must be honored. We need our friends with disability in our churches. So that's, that's another takeaway, really, from what Jesus' answer was to the disciples of John. So if I'm going to pull it all together for you, I can say that because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done for us, we can all work together to create a community where disability is not disabling. Where everybody is growing in grace and everyone is thriving together, that we're doing it all together. The question then is what would that look like? I have an example for you. 
It's probably the one you were all thinking of, right? And that is Martha's Vineyard from the years 1694 to 1952, right? You're all thinking of that one. Uh, I read this detail, this account of Martha's Vineyard during those years, and it's, it's remarkable. The, uh, the original settler of, uh, well, the, the white settler of Martha's Vineyard, Jonathan Lambert, settled there in 1694. He was deaf, and he carried a recessive gene for deafness. Because of the, the geographic isolation of the island, there was a lot of uh, intermarriage, and so deafness uh, was an ordinary part of living on Martha's Vineyard. By the mid-1800s, depending on which little enclave you lived in, one in 25 people were deaf, or as many as one in four, depending on which little settlement you lived in. The result of that was that everybody, everybody on Martha's Vineyard learned sign language. It's not ASL that we have today, but they had their own sign language. And they all used it. They didn't just use it to communicate with their deaf friends. Fishermen would use it to communicate between boats. If a group of hearing people were talking and their deaf friend came up to them, they immediately switched to sign language. Um, the, the count of the person who chronicled this interviewed someone who said she remembered her grandma, who, who was not deaf, uh, would be sleeping you know, midday in her chair and dreaming and, and signing her dreams while she was sleeping because everybody used sign language. And the result of that was there were actually no social barriers uh, for deafness at that time on the island. The, the data shows that, that everyone received the same education, they were well-educated, they had the same jobs, same income levels, they married, they had children, they served in the community, they weren't segregated. They participated in the full life of the community. In a word, deafness was ordinary, it was not disabling. And that is what I think our churches can and should look like because of the answer that Jesus gave to the unexpected question that John the Baptist's disciples asked him. So I want to encourage you all this morning, uh, just, just think, you know, what would it look like here at Trinity? What would it look like in your life to be more intentional? Because you're doing a, a wonderful job already, but just to be more intentional about enfolding the families and the individuals impacted by disability into your church. It's really one tangible way that we can show our love for God and our love for neighbors, friends. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we can be glad that John asked this unexpected question, can't we? Uh, because in, in Jesus' answer, we learn that God has a heart for disability ministry, which is really good news for all of us. Because again, apart from Christ, we're all spiritually disabled. But it's through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus We've been healed. He's turned our shame into praise. We were all outsiders, and now we're part of his family, and we are invited to eat at his table, which is what we're going to do. So would you pray with me as we come to the table? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we, uh, we thank you this morning for Luke, for his gospel. We thank you for the question that John the Baptist asked. Uh, a little surprising, but we get it. We thank you, Lord, for the answer that Jesus gave and what it reveals of you and of us. We're so, we're so amazed that when you came to the planet in human flesh, that you were compassionate. And it's who you are. You're still compassionate. And Lord, we are so thankful that you've had compassion on every one of us, that we come to you with empty hands, 
with a complete inability to make ourselves holy, to make ourselves right. But out of your great love for us, you send Jesus to do for us what we can't. Uh, he has redeemed us. He's turned our shame into praise. Uh, and now, because of what he's done, we get to come to this table. So Lord, thank you so much uh, for your compassion to us. Help us to be a people who show compassion to those around us in whatever context we find the opportunity to do so. And we ask it in the matchless and mighty name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.